Oh, hey there, folks. This is your host, Kate Gaffney, and I'm jumping on to let you know that this is another two-parter. We keep having the unbelievable good fortune of having comics and just various people on who give me so much of their time and have so many stories that I keep having to make these two-parters because we're limited to an hour. And it's so interesting because so many of these people say when we're finished recording, man, I never get to talk about this stuff. So I just could have kept going. So yeah, this is um, Andrea Jones Roy and they were lovely and they had so much to share and they work in higher academics or higher education. How do you say that? I don't know. Didn't go. And they were filled with such an interesting perspective. They're also very funny. They're a comic. So, you know, that helps. But they were filled with tons of stories. And so look up Andrea Jones Roy, see where they are breathing fire, literally, see where they are teaching, see where they are going up to perform. They live in NYC. So if you live in New York, you'll be able to see them. And yeah, this is just, uh, you know, apologies for all these two partners, but I just keep getting great guests that totally understand the assignment and have a lot to talk about. Their information at the will be in the show notes and then in the t- at the bottom of the episode. Thank you folks so much for listening. Let's get on with the show. Nothing. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, and I just want to make sure that I get everything right up top. I want to make sure, is it Andrea or Andrea? Andrea. Andrea. And is it June, yeah. June's Roy? Jones Roy. Boy, I, my guessing is, oh, uh, <laughs> I've heard so much worse. Okay, uh, good. And thank you for, for checking. It's, yeah, Jones as in like the, the regular name, and then Roy as though it's only one O. There's like eight more O's than there needs to be in the name. <laughs> No problem. Um, Thanks very much. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I was like, I wrote down the first and last name of all students I'll be speaking about. No, I'm kidding. But uh, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that because. Uh, <laughs> Good. Call everybody out. Yeah. Let them know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Be like, I'm going to read aloud from homework two from this person. <laughs> and I hope they f- are dripping with shame. Yes. Yeah. I've actually invited them to speak. Uh, explain themselves. <laughs> Do you have any questions for me before we get going? Uh, I don't think so. I, okay. I'm on a personal mission to swear less, but is swearing okay? It's totally or fine. edit that out? You know, I'm I... trying to not do it, but I can also try to do it more if that's helpful for the show, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because God bless my mom. She listens to the show and she hates when I curse, but it's, I live in LA uh, and it's like, it's not as bad as New York, but it's, it's such a default to just say, fuck, 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 fuck. Like I say it all the yeah, time. Yeah, we don't even think about it. No. And I recognize yeah. that it sort of alienates people in the rest of the country. So yeah. I'm going to try and. No, that's. That's why I've mainly, I was like, I guess if I'm into inclusivity, I shouldn't swear. But it's, yeah, it's mostly my boyfriend's mother gets mad. (laughs) In Ohio. That's where my mom lives too. God bless. God bless. What part of Ohio? Well, I'm from a small town called Milford. So that's where my mom lives. It's a town of 6,000. It's outside of Cincinnati. Very Southern Ohio. Oh, yeah. okay. Where's who? I met someone from super Southern Ohio recently. Like he was like, it's basically not Ohio. It's that far South. Is that where you are? Yep. Yep. You s- wow. I, I drive like 15 minutes and I'm in Kentucky. So yeah. Oh, okay. That's how far south. His name is, is Tanner. <laughs> Do you know him? <laughs> is his last name Robinson? No. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say that was my first crush in high school and I will die really? if you say that that's oh who that God. was. I don't think I'm blanking on his last name. I think I'll see him tonight. Uh, we do comedy at the same place now. I'm not actually going to check. I love it. <laughs> I don't think it's Robinson. If it is, let him know Kate Gaffney from Ohio still thinks he's hot, although I've not seen him in 600 years. (laughs) 
you're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all of the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney, and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. <laughs> I'd like to welcome our guest, social scientist, comedian, and professional circus performer in New York City, New York, Andrea Jones-Roy. Amongst being a professor and having a PhD, what? They used to teach and live in Shanghai, which is actually, I learned recently, pronounced Shanghai, I think. I'm doing that right? Yes, I am. Thank you. They currently perform all over the world, host a podcast called Majoring in Everything, and act as the director for NYU's undergraduate studies at the Center for Data Science, y'all. Andrea said about their studies, quote, my primary area of actual original research in social science is on international conflict and censorship, especially in authoritarian countries. Y'all, I can't even say the words that they studied. I am extremely intimidated and I'm going to try not to sound like a complete jackass during our time together. Also, Andrea might be the busiest human with whom I have ever spoken. So we have about five minutes to get this done. So turn your ears on. We're going to get focused. I better know Andrea from meeting them literally right now in this moment with y'all. So Andrea, what got you into entertainment? Do you prefer teaching or playing with fire? Is teaching scarier than comedy? Tell us all the things. I got all the things for you. And <laughs> thanks for that introduction. That was the most <laughs> thorough and most exciting introduction. Normally, it's it's just a boring list of my lack of focus. So I'm very excited about all of that. Uh, well, I, can, I can rank all of these things. So playing with fire is the easiest. Okay. And eating, eating fire hurts, but not as much as student teacher evaluations. <laughs> And comedy was scarier, and they can be meaner, but students students don't mess around. It's it. I I feel more scared after a bad lecture, a bad comedy show. You will leave and you never see those people again. A bad class, you got to see them again on Thursday, right? It's <laughs> it's rough. <laughs> Do you are those crossover skills where you are like my teaching informs my comedy, which informs my teaching, which informs like like is it all eating itself? It, it is a snake eating a hundred other snake tails, <laughs> including its own. Yes. Uh, the, the main thing that helped me with that comedy helped me with teaching is I did improv comedy when I was in grad school because I was a lost soul. And that was the only thing that it was. It was a program I could finish, unlike my Ph.D. program. So I did that. Uh, and it was about as expensive. Uh, I did that. And uh, it made me more comfortable in the classroom right out of the gates. The first time I had to teach my own class. I was terrified. Like, what am I going to say? You know, I was a TA, but that's a little different. And you can kind of play good cop, bad cop with the students and say, yeah, that mean professor, I'm on your side. So it's a different game. But at, when I was a professor for the first time, I was walking into the classroom and I almost had a panic attack because I was like, what am I going to do for an hour and 15 minutes? And then I remembered, I was like, oh, I used to go on stage with no plan in front of people I liked. I don't know these students and I have a PowerPoint slide to lean on. So I'm fine. I mean, I wasn't fine, but it helped. It helped a lot. Now I mostly use uh, teaching informs comedy in that I complain about teaching during comedy. <laughs> I'm going to get fired if it not from this show, then, uh, then from my set later tonight. God bless. Okay, so yeah. how do you, because literally reading your all that you do and being on your website, I was like, they do more than any, I don't, I think is possible for any one human to accomplish in a day. Do you sleep? You know, I do, and I sleep an alarming amount, which is maybe the secret. <laughs> I don't know. I was, li 
literally, I sleep until like 11 a.m. every day. I'm an adult and I sleep so late. I don't know how late you sleep, but it's it's insane. I've tried to wake up earlier. I stay up late, but I also literally was just sitting on the couch thinking about how tired I am. So I don't know. I don't I certainly don't recommend myself as a lifestyle expert. And <laughs> I think I, I, I'm like like a sloth. Like I'll go really slowly. And then like for three hours of the day, I can do a lot of stuff. And then I like have to sit back down. I don't know. If, I don't think any of that's healthy. <laughs> Drinking coffee as we do this. And yeah, same. Okay. Late where I am. Yeah, that's okay. Okay. So you so I, I have like 6000 questions. So I want to understand. So you are you which came first circus comedy or teaching? Like what, what was the trajectory? I think teaching in the sense that that was the first one I got paid for. Okay. I was a dancer actor type growing up and then in college decided to get serious and I studied international relations. Oh, me too. Yeah, right. It was like the sexy, cool major of, I don't want to make guesses about how old you are, but for my time, that was what you did. Now they all do, you know, business and data science. But at the time, IR was where it was at. And so I did that. And I had a professor who was like, well, the obvious next step is a PhD program. And I said, okay, because I can't think for myself. (laughs) And so, so teaching, I didn't even know. But when you go to a PhD program, the point is to become a teacher, which I didn't know. They, they were like, three years in, they were like, well, when you're a professor, and I was like, who said anything about that? And they were like, you don't get in. You do, This is the whole, it's like at the end when they're like, well, you're a lawyer and you're in law school, and you're like, who said anything about being a lawyer? Like, it, it was insane <laughs> that I didn't know this. Uh, but to keep sane, during the PhD program, I kept finding all these other outlets. So one was circus, which I practiced in Detroit at a place called the Detroit Fly House, and the other one was comedy, where I would fly to New York and do uh, then Upright Citizens Brigade stuff out there. R.I.P. And then I moved to Shanghai to start a quantitative science, uh, social science program at NYU Shanghai. And I was I purposely moved there. One, it was the only job I had Two, because I was like, I'm going to run. I'm going to stop doing circus and comedy. I'm going to focus. I've got to focus on my academic career and I'm going to move to China to do it because you can't just, you know, I was like, I don't speak enough Chinese to do comedy, whatever. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And then I got there. And within the first month I was there, they opened this brand new circus-themed nightclub run by this British company, and they explicitly (laughs) wanted a half-foreigner, half-local Chinese cast. And I was like, obviously, I have to... So that they taught me how to do fire. I was an aerialist at the time. And then while I was there, I was doing... They have an improv scene. English, Chinese, mix, all this stuff. So I was doing improv. And I confessed one night to my improv team that I always wanted to do stand-up, but I was way too afraid. And so they talked me into trying it. And I was like, you know what? If it goes horribly, I'll leave the hemisphere. I don't care. And so I did it. And so so teaching is the most consistent part, but the other ones have like kept me alive. Okay. And which if you, if there were a perfect dystopian reality where you just get to handpick exactly what you want, what would be, what would you spend all your time doing? I know you, it, you've made it very clear you're multi-focused, but what if yeah. you could like carve out the perfect day time spending with entertainment, yeah. what would you do? Well, I'm, I'm in the middle of a personal uh, professional crisis. So I'm so glad you asked. I've been thinking about this most, <laughs> most of the year. Uh, here's what I would do. There's a concept in, <laughs> in math called a saddle point. And it's the point in between two peaks. So it's not like a valley between two mountains. It's like a flat area. And I have decided that my life calling is to be in the middle of the comedy science peaks. And circus is in there, but that's more of like a health... I mean, fire's not healthy, but it's like a, <laughs> keeps me sane. 
my life is off the rails if I'm eating fire for health reasons. But it's <laughs> it's sort of there, but it's not really my main thing. So I would like to talk about science and give lectures about things I think matter, like data science, social science, complexity, all that stuff, but in a way that's fun and in a way that's not for only students whose parents can pay tuition. Oh, I want to ask so many questions. We'll get there. I want to ask so many questions. I'm going to make a note. Okay. To jump on the very obvious, the audience will kill me if I don't ask this question. Have you ever been burned and how does one eat? Okay. And how, and and in your, in your throat or where have you been burned? No, I'm burned uh, on my arms. I have some, what I think are pretty gnarly. They're faded, but scars on my arms. So I do something called body burning, which is exactly what it sounds like. We don't have creative names in the world of fire. You're like, what are you doing? Oh, burning the body. That's, that's the trick. <laughs> it's basically, if you're doing it well, it's very dangerous. But if you're doing it well, the idea is to replicate the, you know, if you put your finger through a candle quickly, sure. it doesn't hurt. Sure. The idea is to harness that power. And so you want to be perpendicular to the flame as much as you can and you want to be moving quickly with it so when you eat fire you want to put it in your throat in a way that it's perpendicular to the back of your mouth right okay (laughs) the best part about learning to eat fire is there's no it's a binary like they they give you the little torch to hold and you practice with it not on fire and they're like yeah make sure you're aligned and then they're like now we're going to light it on fire. Like there's no little fire. <laughs> Ooh, no baby fires. No baby fires. Yeah, no oh. baby fires. I, I, I almost never practice fire unless I'm performing. And that means that my skill set is kind of like, there are people who practice at home and they light up every day and they do all that stuff. But I basically, the adrenaline helps you get around that fear as well. Ooh, and ha- have you ever, so you, you said you have the burns on your arms. You've never burnt your yep. throat. Not my throat. I've burned my gums along the back of my teeth. Okay. That that part where, and, and it's because I tend to do fire eating with these really cool fire fans that I have, which are exactly what they sound like. <laughs> and there's seven huge prongs on them. They make these big, amazing uh, images, you know, circular images when you wave them around. And I get greedy when I'm on stage and I decide that I'm going to end the show by eating that fire. And those torches are quite big. And so it's literally the the idea with eating fire is it never actually touches any part of your mouth. You put the fire so that the flames are shooting up as your head is back and you close your mouth around it to deprive it from of oxygen and then it goes out. So you never actually touch anything. There are things you can do where it does kind of touch your tongue, but hopefully you've got enough saliva built up that it doesn't hurt and that sort of thing. But I do it with these fire fans because I'm greedy and it definitely burns because it's way too big and there's no way to make it not touch my mouth. And then I can't drink hot things for like three days. It's got to be horrible for me. (laughs) Can't be good. Can't be good. It can't be good. Like every time I'm like, I got to stop doing this. It's really fun. (laughs) And here's the other thing. So it's it's definitely to compare it to comedy. Like my, I don't want to minimize how dangerous circus is because people can get hurt and killed and, and hospitalized and and paralyzed all kinds of horrible things can happen as a result of circus but barring that people always clap when you eat fire they always clap when you do a split whereas in comedy you do a line that's been killing for years and everyone's like nah we don't think so so it's a little bit more reliable like i'm less nervous before a comedy before a circus show but i'm i could i'm more likely to die (laughs) 
Does this make sense? (laughs) It's so interesting to hear someone who is so obviously very creative as you are, who also you seem very, as you have said, scientifically brained. So you are logicking, like I'm joining you on the logic (laughs) journey. And I'm like, no, this all sounds so logical. Like everything they're saying, it's totally, I follow what you're saying. However, (laughs) if I were to write it all down, I I don't know that I would, it's, I'm impressed. Okay. So I don't want, I I have six billion questions, but I want to understand. So did you pick Shanghai because you spoke Mandarin already because you studied that in undergrad? And so it was like, of course, I'm going to go to China or you did. Okay. No, it sounds like that would make sense. And that's the story I tell when I'm in a hurry or trying to impress somebody. (laughs) But we're we're in a circle of trust here. Uh, So I I was I went to grad school at University of Michigan and then I had a postdoc at Carnegie Mellon, both excellent schools, nice towns. Uh, Pittsburgh is, you know, is, was on the cusp of becoming really exciting at the time. And everyone was like, you should, you're lucky to live in Pittsburgh. And I was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> so no, no hate against Pittsburgh, but I was desperate to live in a big city after all these years of, of middle of the country type stuff. And I really wanted to go to NYU. And so I applied to NYU in their politics department and they were not hiring in politics at NYU, but they were hiring in Abu Dhabi. And so I was like, all right, whatever, I'll go to Abu Dhabi. I don't care. And so I went out there for a job talk, an interview. It's a multi-day process. And at the end, they were like, nah, we don't, we don't want you. <laughs> but Shanghai is also hiring. Why don't you go there? And so they offered me a one-year position that then turned into a tenure track position while I was there. And so I went, uh, you know, I could have stayed at Carnegie Mellon. And, and so I went because it was the only other job that was on the table for me at that time. It did make some sense because my dissertation was on censorship in China. And so I was like, from a research perspective, I'll research the local media there. And then that third reason of like, literally, I was like, I have to commit to academia. What if I move to China where I don't know anyone who can distract me? I, it all went wrong. <laughs> I, I mean, clearly, like, I, I just love yeah. that you were like, all right, universe, I'm gonna lock myself down. And the universe is like, nah, yeah. you're not gonna do that, though. <laughs> you're gonna do all this right. other stuff. Okay. Literally, so- the minute I landed in China, like timeout Shanghai advertisement started showing up <laughs> on my like targeted ads saying like, Cirque Soir is opening downtown Shanghai. I was like, well, gotta do shit. it. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't even a question. I was like, well, I guess I have to do this now. It wasn't like, should I? I was like, I'll just go. Like, I have to go. <laughs> I'll I'm just sort go. this. Okay. And yeah. so then what got you to, because you you teach at NYU uh, based in New York now. So what yes. brought you back from China? Yes, I uh, finally made it back here, but not through a path that makes sense. So I, <laughs> as you can see, my life is a turning <laughs> pile of chaos. <laughs> I, uh, three years into NYU Shanghai, Cirque Soir had closed. Uh, it had its fun run and it was over. I was doing comedy more and more and I was coming to New York during the summers to practice com- like comedy open mics and stuff and then train circus. And I felt like I was at a point in both circus and comedy that if I stayed in Shanghai, I would like continue to get work, but not necessarily work with people who could like push me to be better. Necess- necessarily. That's a little bit unfair to say, but I was sort of itching to kind of go to the place where, where the scenes were bigger. Sure. And, and, you know, my, my family's over here and blah, blah, blah. And I was very on the fence about academia. And I had been in academia my whole life. I went straight from undergrad to my PhD program and straight to a postdoc, straight to another postdoc, straight to a professor job. And I was like, I gotta see what life is like outside of the semester schedule. Like, what am I doing with my life? And I was like, I'm barely, like, I like the field and I like being a teacher to an extent, but I was like, this isn't my passion. You know, when you ask like, which came first, like 
teaching sort of, but I grew up thinking I'd never want to be a teacher. And so I was like, why am I doing a job I'm kind of lukewarm on, on the other side of the world, away from the things I want to be doing and my family. So I quit my tenure track job with no plan, moved to New York and suffered <laughs> for several years. But in the process, kind of elbowed my way into some consulting and some freelance work. And I was doing kind of okay by the end with, with some Fortune 500 consulting with social science, data science, blah, blah, blah. And then NYU called me and said, hey, we're starting an undergrad course in data science. We need someone to teach it. Are you interested? And I was like, yeah, fine. And I'm also interested in health insurance. <laughs> and they were like, <laughs> okay. So I've been back there. I've been at NYU since 2019. Um, and, you know, taught through the pandemic, all that stuff. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. so myriad circumstances got you there. And then are you, because of the, you said you're sort of at a, not dark night of the soul, but you're at this sort mm. of turning point. So yeah. are you just staying in academia for the remainder of your career? Is this too risky to answer? Maybe it's too risky to answer, but um, does staying in academia feel like a trajectory that makes sense for you? Or if you could do comedy every night, that would right. kind of make more sense. I'm so excited. I did not anticipate talking about any of this today. I'm so excited <laughs> to be talking about it. I'm fine uh, because I'm literally, I, I like I'm working with a career coach. She's awesome. And we literally were emailing this morning about like, what would it look like if the path that you want to be on was, was at NYU or NYU is a big part of it, or if you did it on your own. And so everything I've been talking about with like kind of living at the intersection of science and comedy is like, top of mind and I have until like Wednesday to decide which I'm doing. So okay. I'll, I'll let you know okay. where I land. Yeah. yeah. We'll check back yeah. in. That's great. Yeah. Okay. But the, uh, cause basically my contract is up and I either need like to be all in on academia or not. I'm at this moment, uh, I am, I just met you, but I'll tell you at this moment, I'm leaning towards leaving because I feel increasingly convinced that I want to, reach out to people who wouldn't otherwise have access to the sort of education that I was lucky enough to stumble into. But I, I, I like health insurance. So there it's we are. Hard. I, I was, I just finished an interview with someone where we were saying how health insurance just, it's those, it, it's not even golden handcuffs. Yeah. It's literally, I just don't want to die in the street. So I just need yeah. to not have to debate. Should I take an ambulance or not? Because this bill is going to be so high, but right. Oh, I could, right. I could start and a whole, and then I'll, Go ahead, yeah, go ahead. I'll be like, you know, I'll, I'll gear myself up and think about it. And, and I'm like, I, I need to live my life. And this is, and then I'll like fill a prescription and see how much it would have cost without insurance. And you're like, forget it. Forget it. <laughs> I love my job. Forget it. I'm having the best oh. time, everybody. Oh, I'm bless. so fulfilled. I can't get enough. <laughs> There's no, this cup is to the brim. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, you've said, so we've made some, I want to go back to some things, but, but so the way that this podcast worked, there's three sections and we get to the next section is where we get into the nitty gritty of customer service. And I okay. absolutely include teaching and customer service. No question. So, yep. um, but before we move on, so get us up to today, as far as can people see you doing circus still in New York somewhere? Can they, when, like, do you have a regular show that you're doing comedy? Like, cause I feel like with a mm -hmm. teaching schedule yikes so how do you how do people get eyes on you yeah they can come so I do comedy multiple nights a week usually Thursday Friday Saturday at least and sometimes during the week at the Grizzly Pear Comedy Club which is on McDougal right down the street from the Comedy Cellar and we're about to open we I'm barely involved in this part <laughs> but we're about to open a location in Midtown which is very exciting oh right okay. right across from the Colbert Theater so I'm gonna 
tell my parents I'm a success. <laughs> be like, I'm performing on Broadway now, so mm, thank you very much. Uh, that's what's going on with comedy. Okay. And I don't do circus a ton in New York. I just got back from a, actually a data science speaking gig where at the end they were like, well, you do fire too? And I was like, okay. Because it was this outdoor thing and you basically, New York has some very strict fire laws, which is good, but you go, you go east and you kind of, get freed up to set stuff on fire and people don't care as much. So uh, Eastern Europe uh, <laughs> is where I perform a lot of fire. Uh, and I used to perform at this Russian dinner theater in, in Sheepshead Bay in New York near Coney Island. But that, I think, didn't survive the pandemic. Bless. Anyway, so I do circus sometimes, not a ton. Sometimes I, I leap around on, on TikTok. It's very embarrassing. Uh, and te- so one of the things about academia that's so nice is that it's, very flexible. Apart from the Tuesday and Thursday afternoons that I have to be in class and there's no way around it and that's okay, I can kind of do whatever I want. Hence why I sleep late and I can like stay out late and I can keep my weird hours. You know, I've tried the nine to five plus comedy and that's actually much harder than what I was doing. Yes. The one I am doing. Yeah. Yeah. To have the bandwidth to be able to do that. Okay. And then last question in this section, can you give people the concept of your podcast and how they can hear it? Yes. So the podcast is called Majoring in Everything, and it's, I have spent my whole life feeling bad about doing multiple things, and only recently have been like, what if it's awesome to do lots of different things, not that great? And so, and I realized other people have thought of this too, but it took me a while to come to it. And so I decided to interview other people who I admire who do multiple things. And one of the hypotheses I'm exploring is that doing multiple things medium well can be advantageous over being an expert in one thing. And I'm starting and I'm learning some of the the, the ways that they experience that. And, and kind of as you opened this uh, segment asking about is like what unexpected discoveries or overlap or surprising connections are there between two disparate fields or more. I love So you can listen to it on all the places you get your podcasts. And uh, it's called Majoring in Everything. And it's also on YouTube if you want to see video versions of the interviews. Well done you. Okay. I love all of that. Um, Okay. Well, folks, we hope you enjoyed your apps. We're going to go on to the entrees after a quick break. I've built in breaks for, you know, at some point this will monetize. Right. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's (laughs) got a t-shirt at some point. This will monetize. That's amazing. (laughs) Okay. We are back and now it is time to move on to the entrees. Okay. Andrea, the way this works is it's a bunch of questions. It's the same questions mostly every time we, but feel free to tell stories. The, this is the audience favorite section because this is the gripe section. In desserts, mm. we get into the nice stuff. You can tell nice stories okay. in this section, but like, you know, you're not obligated right. to. Right. Now is where we're griping. Okay. So what was the your first job ever where the government was taking taxes out of your income? So we've had babysitting paper out, stuff like that. But like, what was the job where you were getting a paycheck? I think my first job where I got a paycheck was as a server at a Perkins in Western <gasps> Maryland. You know what Perkins is. Yeah. I you know, love Perkins. it. Uh, yeah. what, what is it? What was it? The stickers said Perkins kid or something like that. Oh, I don't remember that. But my business now. Oh, I think so. My sister, that was okay. her first job. So yeah. And, and they had like the, um, the, the display with the, like, you could get the cinnamon rolls and the whatever mm-hmm. at the one by where in my town. Okay. So you were a server at Perkins. How long did that last? Like six months. I was so bad at it. <laughs> Why were I got you a tip, my lowest tip. I got three dimes and this was in, you know, 1998. And that was still, so it's like, they couldn't even pick a bigger currency. It's just three, three dimes. And I remember missing the 4th of July fireworks and being like, I got to get out of this. This sucks. <laughs> and so then I became a lifeguard pretty quickly after that. And that was a much better job. I did that for a few years. Oh, that feels very stressful to me. That was better. Why was that better? It was much better. 
the it's one of those it's kind of like circus in the sense that at the at the tails it's very dangerous and very bad but the vast majority of time you're like yeah i'm fine i'm just sitting here just right saying. i think the sunburns i got are probably more dangerous than anything i did <laughs> as a lifeguard once only once it's just like a local i mean i think a lifeguard for like a, a beach or something Oof. is an insane job yeah i was at the local vfw pool and uh veterans of foreign wars i don't know how many listeners are are up on, on veterans uh, facilities <laughs> and it was just you know families and kids and the most dangerous thing i did was once a girl looked like she was not doing great she was in the lap lane and i had already gotten dressed i was leaving my shift was over and i was like oh gosh and then i was like hey grab the lane line yeah grab it yeah okay now pull yourself in that's it. I never saved anyone. I didn't even, only as I was leaving, I was like, I probably should have gotten in. It didn't even occur to me. I love it. Okay. So I you, think I'm bad at every job. I think this is what I'm learning in real time as we talk about this. No, you're just medium good at all the things. It's good. There we go. It's good. Yeah. Okay. So you lasted as a lifeguard for a couple of years, you said? Yeah. And was that just couple over years. summers or was that, that was a year round job? It was for summers originally, the, you know, last two years of high school, first year of college kind of kind of deal. And then in college, I also worked as a lifeguard, but I purposely chose the shifts. I'm, I'm very lazy. I purposely <laughs> chose the shifts when water polo was practicing. Nice. So I could just sit and do my homework. Yep. Don't have to do while much. They practice. I was like, they're not going to drown. And even if they are, they're like three times the size of uh, What are they going to do? <laughs> yeah. So there's I would a- just sit and do other things. I love it. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So you did that. So job. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it. you get a good visual on that one too. Um, yeah. How many customer service jobs would you say you've had total? And I would definitely include being a professor. Yeah, it's definitely all become, thank you for saying that. It's also become much more customer service over time, or I'm just older and angrier, but okay. <laughs> so teaching for sure. Uh, I was a server Perkins, as I said, and I was also a server at uh, a restaurant called Coffee Shop in Union Square in New York City that is now closed. Okay. But I was the late night server. So my shift was from like 11.45 to 5 a.m. And it was wild. Uh, so that. And then, I mean, comedy is kind of a service yes. job. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even more than being on stage as a service job, which it is, mm-hmm. uh, is I sell, you know, I do barking and sell tickets and host and and seat people, you know, that kind of stuff too. So I've been on various sides of the people wanting refunds and whatever kind of thing. <laughs> or they're like, if we don't like it, do we get a refund? Like, what what world do you live in? Yeah, it's not. Yeah, I mean, I guess be bold and ask. I guess I'm a little envious of the people that aren't scared to have no shame. Yeah. I guess, but also please stop. Please stop forever. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. I so that's four. You've had various arms in all of them, but I'm counting. Let's see, lifeguard, yeah. two server, the, actually five, six, six because of professor. Well, okay, and so I don't six. know, you know, circus performances. I do a lot of like, you know, there's nightclubby stuff, and so that whole thing is a service industry. And we used to have to go in Shanghai, and if the rich uh, Shanghainese bought, you know, what you know. Um, champagne shows and stuff like that that sounds sketchier than it is literally they would buy 100 bottles of champagne and we'd all march around with sparklers and the bottles and then we had to stand there and like let them kiss our face and then cheers with them and and all this creepy stuff so that's a service job yeah and then now in the u.s i do more of the like bat mitzvah wedding anniversary birthday parties for rich people Mm. so that's that there's a there's a that might be it 
there's a lot of uh, intersection in your life with people who are in this like different cast of like just being extraordinarily wealthy and being able to throw money at weird stuff. But yeah. you very wisely have capitalized on the cool. I'm gonna learn how to do some <laughs> weird stuff then. Like, you're cool. Yeah. Please pay me. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, rich people are bored out of their minds. That's one of the things I'm I'm learning. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> you can. If you're at the top of the mountain, what's your what's the hustle? What's the grind? It's like it's why they they, you know, buy cars that could careen off the road because yeah. it's like they got to yeah. they got to feel something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned that now being a professor feels way more customer servicey than it did before. And at the in your intro, you mentioned how uh, the parents may have some influence because they're paying the tuition or feel as though they do. Do you care to elaborate on any of those points? <laughs> I w- I'm so glad you asked. I didn't uh, <laughs> had no idea we'd we'd get to talk about this. Yes, uh, I would care to elaborate. I I've I am lucky in the sense that parents tend to leave me alone, but when they do email me, it's rough. Literally, I had a prof- a, a parent a few years ago. It was right before the pandemic. Emailed me to say why I teach a course called Data Science for Everyone, and I really I really like the course. I'm very proud of the course. It's for everyone. And we have huge long wait lists. I think not because it's a great course. It is a great course, but I think it's because everyone thinks they need to learn data science. So we're obviously capitalizing on that. And I had an email from a parent that said, hello, you offer a course called Data Science for Everyone. Why don't you increase the cap? And I wrote back and said, oh, we can't fit that many people in the room. What? I, what? That's it. That's an insane and question. You can't. You can't. take it a different semester. We offer it all the time. Yeah. And he wrote back and he said, well, that's not very good customer service now, is it? And I was like, at least in, in, in education, we pretend it's not customer service. Pretend. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I wrote back and I had to write this big, long thing where I was like, well, actually, we want to make sure there's a quality of experience for students and it's a hands-on and that, that, that. So I wrote all this crap. But in my mind, I'm just like, what? The parents think it's customer service as well? I get he's the one paying the bill. But we get other stuff where students start to, you know, they'll email and say, uh, we think that uh, this So we had to do some video lectures during the pandemic and we would record them and then it was asynchronous. And we got an email from someone saying, I'm paying X amount of dollars per lecture. I think the production value should be a little bit higher. And you're like, what? I've literally what? died. I've literally died. I can't, I can't yeah. even. Uh, 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 like, it's, a, it's a pandemic. Also, the quality is great. <laughs> also, you know, the, the department sent us all ring lights and microphones and all this stuff. And if you're in a lecture, it, we wrote this like, you know, 20 hours per. It was insane. It was also, absolutely insane. if the government of one of the largest economies in the world didn't have a contingency plan for when yeah. everything shuts down, I'm going to yeah. guess, even though it's an amazing school, I'm going to guess right. NYU didn't have a contingency plan for when all their shit shut down, too. Right. Like right. the audacity the audacity right. i can't imagine i can't imagine who is the person like pe- people god bless the people without shame god bless them okay so right? i mean the the lesson here is is to have that kind of ego or self-esteem like i wish yeah here's the problem is that especially teaching a big class and this is where i'm like it might be getting worse over time but i don't know because i'm not holding stuff constant so i've gone from teaching political science, teaching data science, which means I'm talking to two slightly different populations of students. There's overlap, but students take a political science course because they're interested in the issues. And then they're dismayed to learn that there's some math in it. My, the student, okay, I'm going to speak in broad terms. Many students take data science courses because they want to work in management consulting and fintech. And so they're less moved by the social justice (laughs) issues that I think are very potentially excitingly 
uh, could be combined with data science for exciting effect. Okay, so they sort of have different goals, and so that could be some of what's going on. Another piece of it is that I'm teaching much bigger courses. So rather than getting to know, you know, a class of 25, 30 decently well, like half of them will kind of regularly participate and it's okay. Now I teach courses that are like 200 students. And so I only hear from the ones that have complaints. You almost never hear from the ones that are thoughtful, awesome, imaginative. Every now and again, you do. This is where I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say it because it's, I think people need to know. It's, it's, it's very painful. You just get emails from people who are complaining about everything, right? There's not enough words on the slides. There's too many words on the slides. The PDFs should be combined into one PDF as opposed to three P. And you're like, this, none of this matters, right? I had almost an uproar last semester because my students thought I should give them sample exams before the exams. Like we give a midterm and a final and they're like, well, where's the sample exam? I looked everywhere for the sample. I can't find the sample exam. And there is no sample exam. Study the material and then take the exam. Like what? And, and it was, it was like a, like it wasn't a petition, but like online discussion forums and group emails and crises because there was no sample exam. And you're just like, where did this come from? And then, and then there's an outrage at me when they don't do well. And I'm not perfect and I can always explain things better. And I do pay attention to the feedback as best as I can say, oh yeah, I see more, more shorter assignments versus uh, whatever. Like I, I'm open to it, but there's so much, I don't want to throw on the word entitlement, but that's all it is. It's just this like, I'm at this school, I'm amazing. If I'm not getting an A, it's because you have failed me in some way. Like that's the mentality that I hear and my email inbox makes me feel sick every time I open it. Ugh. Ugh. Is that too much? No, <laughs> too no, hard? it's so honest. And I, I think this yeah. is the piece that people don't hold space for people in a position like you're in that it's like, we, I, this is the reason my dad retired early from being a professor because he mm. literally got an email from the school that said your, your classes are too hard. They have to be easier. Not enough people are passing because the parents were emailing it with an expectation yeah. that they will pass because they're spending enormous amounts of money on tuition. And it's like, the business of education is is has gotten it feels as though it has yeah. gotten more businessy and yes. that's I, that's tough i think so too and i i was thinking about our conversation or i was anticipating this conversation and i was like why why is it the case that it feels more businessy because i've always operated under the model even from the beginning i would have students you know when i first started teaching in like 2005 2006 students would come and if they got an a minus They'd come to my office in tears and say, I'll never get into law school. This was before 2008 when we had, we were like, oh, we have way too many lawyers. But every, every generation or every few years, there's like some reason that, so now I'm failing them because they can't get into their master's program in data analytics, but okay. So there's always been some of that, but I used to tell a story to myself that like, yeah, it's customer service in the sense that sure, someone's paying something and in re- return, they're getting something. And I'm, I'm in the mix of that. So I'm not going to like deny that it's customer service, but I tried to tell myself that it's, it should be thought of as like you hire a personal trainer or a coach or a therapist, not just to give you what you want, but to challenge you, right? And so you, I hire a personal trainer and I go in and I'm sore the next day and I'm like, oh, you made me sore. It's like, that's what I paid for. And I, you didn't pay for someone to say, wow, you're really great and not make you do more than two pushups. And so I've tried to like keep that narrative in my head and I find it's harder and harder to grasp as I go on to trick my, because it just seems so transactional with my students. And I do see more of the, 
you know, well, I pay X number of dollars, so I should be getting this, this, this. And, and I mean, tuition is out of control, but I need to be, I'm not getting that money, right? Yeah. You know, some professors are, I'm not one of those. Yeah. So it's not like the, you know, we would get all these complaints to say, I'm paying full tuition. Why am I getting this hybrid pandemic teaching? And it's like, first of all, it's twice as hard for me to do. And second of all, I haven't gotten a raise in years. So yeah. I don't know where this money's going. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to me. You're like, email the school. Don't email me. So yeah. do you, have you noticed an uptick in like, like, do you ever get a kid who gets a C and then they're like, yeah, super earn this C. I'm not going to fight them on this grade or whatever. Or do you, is it always at this level, anything below an A, you're going to get some kind of like, hey, can we negotiate this grade experience? It's almost always the A minus students. And that's interesting. The ones who were kind of checked out or checked out. I think I could go back and map a correlation as a data scientist. I could map <laughs> a correlation between, you know, number or percentage of A minuses in the final grade roster and the number of hate emails that my co-instructors and I receive as a result of that. And I, I've, I mentioned this once in a TikTok video and it got a ton of views and I'm afraid to watch any of the comments. So I don't know if the world disagrees with me on this, but basically what I said in that is, and what's going on here is there's a huge conflict of interest and maybe your dad experiences too, when you're a professor or a teacher of any kind, but a professor in particular, because the students have some kind of autonomy with arguing with you. Like you're not dealing with the parents, you're dealing with the students. And I have found at various times that if I teach a class and I make it easier and almost everyone gets an A in the end, you basically get an A if you kind of did the work and tried. Like I have the power to change that scale around and, and give everyone an A if I want to. If I do that, I don't get any of this grief. No one's in my office complaining. No one's sending emails about how bad. No one's posting rate my professor or starting Reddit threads specifically about me because I'm ruining their whatever. I could just give everyone A's and I could make the class easier but it's like up to me to hold the line, right? And, you know, you can do a perfect correlation with grades and teaching evaluations. And it's just, you know, what my incentive in the long term is to teach people how to do data science. My incentive in the short term is to get good teaching evaluations and make my email experience less soul crushing. And, and so I could do that by giving everyone A's. But it's like there it's sort of outside of integrity, right? It's like if you yeah. are, I mean, if your goal is to educate and challenge and actually give the generation below us opportunities to really see the world in a different way or really grow as people so that the world is set up for success, then yeah. if you're giving everybody a participation trophy for just having shown yeah. up, it's like, well, what what are yeah. they there for then? Like what's right. the point? Because if, if everybody gets an A, the A is useless. Like it's not right. actually fair. Well, and I think, too, you know, great inflation has been a conversation that it's certainly I've been aware of that's been going on since the last century. It's not like a new thing. But I do think that given great inflation in a lot of places and that I think students do come to expect A's and many of the students as well, you know, came from being the top of their high school. And so now they're in this mix where it's like, oh, God, but an A minus carries a lot more weight because if everyone's getting an A and you happen to get an A minus, then that actually looks very bad. Even uh, though it's not, it's a great grade. It's, it's, you know, yeah. can, it's, can, it's a nightmare. Can your students see, like, are the grades posted of what everybody got in the class? No. So this is, uh, I'm so glad you asked, because this is a big point of consternation among students as well. And we had to add a whole section to our syllabus that was like, focus on your own work. Do not worry about how other people are doing. 
because so there is a curve in the class in the sense that every semester the students are a little different. Sometimes our homeworks are easier or harder. We have to write brand new homeworks and brand new exams every semester because there's so much cheating. And so we're rewriting. You have, so, you're so, kidding me. No, we can't. It's insane. They all end up on the Internet. All, and we don't we don't release answer keys. We don't let them leave the exam room with the exam. And it still ends up all over the Internet. It's so so we and writing exams is exhausting. Writing there's no sample exam. I'm I'm barely getting this exam done. Right, <laughs> homeworks are hard, and they're they're detailed. You know, it's like find a new data set, do this, do an out. Like it's very time intensive to do all of this, and so there's all this cheating all the time. We have these little ways that we we catch people cheating, and I won't reveal them, but we do catch cheaters uh, on the back end, and it's it's horrifying how many we catch every time, every time. And the most sympathetic I can be is they're all nervous and competitive and trying to get jobs. And so I see whether, but okay. Uh, but where was I going with this? Um, was I the grade you? inflation and how so, posting the posting the everybody's grades. Right. right, right, right. Yes. So we get a, so there is a curve in the sense that most introductory courses at most universities, you know, a broad, you know, 10% ish are in the A category, 10% in the A minus. Da, 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 da. It's sort of sort of like the normal gra- normal distribution bell curve style, but we we tend to bias it up. So most of our students end up with A minus B plus because that's consistent with the the average GPA for whatever we we. But it varies a little bit every time. But it's not like we force people into lower grades. The curve almost always helps students, but what it means is they don't know exactly where they stand. Until we reveal the grade, which I am understand, I am sympathetic to the fact that that can be stressful. And so, what they what they want to know are things like, if I have, I'm making this up. If I have 90 out of 100 points, is that an A or is it an A minus? And we will say, well, we don't know because we don't know until we've done the whole calculation at the end and we decide where the cut. Like, there's literally no way mathematically to anticipate that without really hurting people. And then, and so they all complain about that because they're like, well, I don't know where I stand. How am I supposed to study for the exam if I don't know where I stand? And you're like, well, you could just work on the material and do the best that you can. How about that? Like, just call and be crazy, right? Maybe, but, but we'll have like review sessions in class and they'll spend the first 45 minutes of an hour and 15 minute review session saying, what's the median? What's the mean? What's the grade I have to get? How hard is it? Is it harder than, is it? And you're just like, yo, focus on your own. Daryl, Okay. But then I try to listen and I say, okay. And so one semester I said, forget it. There is no curve. Well, I'm just going to grade you and I'm going to grade you. And it's, you'll know. And we got another petition from students started on this discussion form that everyone signed saying, it's unfair that there's no curve. There's been curves in semesters past. This is a disadvantage for us. How dare you? So we were like, fine, there's a curve. Like, what, what, what do, do you, you want? Right? And then, and then sometimes, you know, there's, there's FERPA privacy. So you're like students' grades are, are legally comp- confidential, just like your medical records. It's not quite as strict, but it's very strict. So like you that. can't, like, I can't tell anyone anyone's grade, so I can't post people's grades, but we can, if we wish, share like the occasional summary statistics. So we might say the mean grade for the midterm was, I don't know, 30 out of 35, whatever, right? Right. And whenever we do that, there's then a panic because students say, oh my God, if it's that high, then maybe I got an A minus. If it's that low, then maybe I got an A and they freak out. And then when we don't tell them, they freak out. And we get a lot of emails and complaints that say we're flying blind, air quotes. We're flying blind because we don't know how we're doing compared to the other. And you're just like, oh, my God. Just like, I just want to talk about data science. I don't want to talk about any of this. Yeah. Do the best. Oh. 
Well, and that's I'm so upset. I, I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I lie you, down. No, I mean, yeah. I, I, I want to lie down listening to this. Like I feel for you so much and I feel for all professors. I had no idea because when I was in school, like, I mean, to talk about low self-esteem, I couldn't worry about anybody else. Cause I was so like, Mm-mm. I don't know. Studying is taking up all my bandwidth. And like, I just yeah. have to get by, by the skin of my teeth. And like the thought of, I mean, I had friends that would go to professors and argue for a different grade and my yeah. head would explode. I'm like how can you do that you've just you've earned the grade that you got what do you mean and I get it if it were an artistic project I guess or if it were an essay or something sort of like where there aren't really solid metrics but it's like you're in a math class bro how do you go in there and say I didn't deserve to get 10 questions wrong it's like yeah but you got them wrong I don't understand. Like I don't. Right. My head is going to explode. Well, we also had to recently, I I should just like, I'm just going to invite you to to share in the edit history of our syllabus because we have to like, this is how like, you know, local laws that are like, you can't have an elephant in the bathtub. Like this is where they come from is like crazy stuff happens. So we had to finally implement a policy of no partial credit on anything. Or we say something like partial credit is a courtesy. So all of our exams, all of our homeworks are worth, every question is worth one point. And that's it. You know, it's like 40 questions, 40 points. And there's like, they're, they're thematic. So, so, you know, if 10 questions are about like, you know, talk about this research study. Okay, 10 questions are like, do this thing in code and whatever. So they're kind of related, but they're still each worth one point. And we, we started to give out half points. Some of our, our TAs are more generous than I am. And they'd say, well, you know, you, you put the code right, but you pointed to the wrong thing. Or really, you just got this wrong because you answered the previous question wrong, but I see where you're going. And so they were giving half credits and I was okay with it. Then they started giving out quarter credits, like 0.25 points. And I was like, this seems not good. And then students started coming to office hours and emailing us arguing over the half credit and the 0.25 credit and saying, I should get 0.75 credit. I should get 0.4. Yeah, no, stop. It's done. Right? It's done. You ruined it for everyone. We, we ruined it for everyone. And so we went back to just 0.5 only, but we just kept getting questions where people would clearly get these things wrong and they'd say, I think this was at least worth partial credit. And you'd be like, no, it's wrong. So now our rule is there is no partial credit, except for in the very rare circumstances when your TA just feels nice. And I think we should even get rid of that because it's already just one point. And that also has made its way onto Reddit where there are complaints. I don't look this stuff up, by the way. I have a colleague who sends them to me. And I wish uh, she didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this would <laughs> cause me stuff. panic. Yeah. But they're like, there's no partial credit. How am I supposed to get an A in this class if there's no partial credit? And as you said, it's you either did it or you didn't. And I try to emphasize, like, you know, real life. You're a data scientist for a company. Your, your boss doesn't care that your results were wrong and they're going to get half a, half a raise. What? No, you either, oh. you either got it or you didn't. I I don't know how you how do you they're lucky at where you teach (laughs) that you have other interests and you're getting your tank filled in other ways because Mm -hmm. I feel like if this were my only sort it would be so easy for me even as like an empath it would be so easy for me to be like you know what everybody gets an A I don't care because the burnout has to be so are you seeing turnover in professors more so than you've seen previously it's it's tough to say in part because at least I'm at a big university and so we actually don't really know other professors uh, very well. You're sort of like on your own. Oh, it's kind of a lonely job, yeah. really. I do see that we have jobs where we're having trouble filling them. Mm. And that's it's a little bit hard to say for sure what the cause of that is because Great Recession plus data science lends itself to tech jobs and those are pretty coveted. So it's, you know, it's it's a little bit weird. 
less turnover because once you get tenure, you're there forever or if you're on the tenure track. So so I don't see that as much. But what I do see a lot of and I don't know how much selection bias or what I'm confirmation bias, selection bias, all the biases. I'm seeing professors on Twitter are all exhausted. We're all burned out. I, I would be surprised if we all stay. I've been very lucky to have co-instructors until this semester and co-instructors help. You can kind of sit back and kind of laugh about it. And you're like, am I losing my mind? And you're like, no. Oh, okay. But this semester I'm on my own and it's just like, like steering a ship through a hurricane. (laughs) It's just, that's a bit rough. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if there's a big movement, but it's a slow to change industry because people go into it because of the stability. Sure, sure. It's, It's hard for me to say, but I'm genuinely, the students are the main reason I am strongly tempted to leave, which sucks because a lot of the students are great. I just don't hear from them as much. Yeah, it's kind you know? of it's like the manager at the restaurant who only gets complaints. And then when you call them right. over to the table to be like, yeah, you, this was an amazing meal. They start with their arms crossed and they're really angry. And then you're like, yeah. no, no, no. We had a really good time. That's why we're t-. and then they're like, oh, and then they crumble because they're like, well, we yeah. just never hear the positive. This is crazy. Yeah, yeah I feel like yeah. And, and it sort of is a I, I mean, I would I would lament that this is the future that and I understand the enormous pressure that they're under to perform before perform. But I would also think, oh, my gosh, are we setting ourselves up for a world where you're either winning or you're dead. Like, well, then if mm-hmm. if if everything is a competition and everybody's winning, then nobody is. It's such a weird, right. I don't right. know. I mean, I don't think capitalism is the answer, but I guess capitalism has crept right. into education. So here we are. Uh, it's right. very, anyway. Right. There, there's another way that this shows up too that is, uh, and I, and I, it's worse this year, I think, than years past. But again, it could just be the our program has grown and so I'm seeing more of it is the last stage of all of this. You're arguing for grades, but then at the end of your college career, you need letters of recommendation to go get a job somewhere else or get a um, get into a master's program. And so I'm getting emails from students saying, hey, will you write me a letter of recommendation? And I am thinking, I'm in big trouble for saying this, but like <laughs> I am thinking, all you did was complain. All you did was argue with me. You know, what, what kind of letter am I going to write? You know, or I don't even remember you. I don't know. I mean, I guess that's a good thing, frankly. So I could write that. And so the the kind of capitalism final push rears its head where I write back and I say, I don't know. I don't think I can write a very strong letter. I don't remember you. You took this class with me. You never said anything. Or if you did, it was it was an unpleasant interaction. So I don't think it would be a very strong letter. And then they say, well, I'm desperate. I don't have anyone else. I can't even complete the application. So I need you to do it. And you're like, well, I don't know if you need. So it's it, as you said, if everyone wins, everyone loses. Yeah. And and it's I see that in these, you know, it's a very small percentage who come back for letters of recommendation. But even I've never had a, a student like I'll be honest, I'll say I'm, I'm not going to write you a very strong letter. I would suggest you find someone else. This is the first year I've ever had students and many students come back and say, I don't care. I'll take it. I have nothing else. And it's, it's I've never had that before. Can wow, you imagine no. if someone's like, it's not going to be a good letter? You're like, I'll take it. Like they're they're all. I mean, I feel for them. Again, they're they're in trouble, and and COVID doesn't help because no one knows anyone because of COVID. But sure, uh, sure, it's it's very ugly, and I feel like there's a big crisis coming in higher education, and you know the the never mind the the prices and the haves and the have nots and and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it sounds great. This is a great recruitment yeah, ad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're hiring, so, if, by the way, yeah. If, any, if anybody's interested in becoming a professor, slide <laughs> into Andrea's DMs. Slide into Andrea's yes, DMs. Right, they've fine. got you. Yeah. Um, okay. So, 
Uh, I'm going to go back to the questions because <laughs> I'm, I'm so, so, you are fascinating and you're so good at being thorough. And so I want to pick your brain on everything. So I've got to, yeah, yeah. but I still have to get back to the questions because my audience is going to scream. Okay. So That's going to do it for us for part one with Andrea Jones Roy. All of their socials and everything can be found on jonesroy.com. That's J-O-N-E-S-R-O-O-Y.com. They talk about their PhD studies and everything else there. So take a look and then join us next week for part two. Thank you folks so much for listening. Good night.